Okay, welcome everyone. Good afternoon uh, for those of you joining us on the West Coast and East Coast. Good evening for those of you joining us in the UK. For those who don't know me, my name is Ethan Marcus. I'm the Managing Director for the Sephardic Jewish Brotherhood of America, the national umbrella organization for the Ladino-speaking Sephardic communities of the United States. We're so excited to be here tonight um, in partnership with the Habura, which is a brand new program through the S&P Sephardi community, as long as the Dengor Education and the Montefiore Endowment of the United Kingdom are partners uh, who we're very excited to be working with on spreading the Sephardic word around the world and exp exploring Sephardic Torah philosophies and perspectives. Just as a reminder, this is a partnership through the Brotherhood's Sephardic Digital Academy, an online database of Sephardic Torah, Halakha, classes on Ladino language, culture, history, and so much more. If you're interested in learning about our other programs or haven't seen our other programs before, please check out our website at sephardicbrotherhood.com slash Sephardic Digital Academy or cast up, catch up on previous classes on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Sephardic Brotherhood. We're here in part two today for this wonderful series on Sephardic Chachamim, Sephardic Responsa for the Modern World with our friend Rabbi Jack Cohen, who is a student of the Habura and also a communal, community rabbi in London, very active in the Sephardic community, particularly with young professionals. And without further ado, I'm going to head over the floor to him. He's going to be talking about one of the great Sephardic scholars of the 20th century and some of his Torah perspectives. Rabbi Jack, whenever you're ready. Thank you very much for the warm introduction. I'm uh, happy to be here. It's now seven past 11 at night, and it's been a nice night because I've come straight from the victorious results of the England football game to to present the shiur and then off to bed for another day i uh i have a confession to make up front i personally am not uh i'm not of the sephardic tradition i am ashkenazi but thanks to some very good friends and mentors and rabbis i've ended up embroiled in uh in 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 the world of sephardic thought and uh, i very much benefit and gain from it and that kind of gets on to why I decided to speak about Chacham Abadi today. Um, we're going to look at a specific Teshuvah of his, which uh, we'll get to in a second and take a very, uh, I, I hope, useful approach to breaking it down. Um, one of the thinkers who has inspired me is uh, Chacham Jose Faor, passed away over a year ago now, and uh, I wasn't acquainted with him personally, but I was acquainted with his teachings and his writings and his uh, shiurim, which are online. And when he spoke of halakha, he said that there were first-rate poskim, and then there was everyone else. There was first-rate halachic decisors, and, and there was everyone else. And for him, Chacham Abadi was very much a first-rate halachic decisor, and that gets me. That got me on to trying to make sure that I could see some of his work, and trying to understand what was so special about his approach. What could I learn from it, and what could I share with others? So, by word of background, um, and maybe a little plug as well. I'm not going to do a full introduction or a full biography, but uh, Chacham Abadi was born in Aleppo moved very temporarily to Yerushalayim and then on to America, where he spent a lot of his time um, self-confessed, feeling very guilty about not living in Israel. Um, he also, I mean, he was a, a phenomenally erudite and passionate and talented uh, Chacham. Um, but 
he, for various reasons, was working and he also spent a lot of time teaching um, young, uh, young children or young Talmudim in, in school. Um, and he writes about that and he says, on the one hand, I could have written many Sepharim uh, if I hadn't done that. And on the other hand, he says, but if I had written many Sepharim, the benefit would have been lost uh, from all of the students that I was able to teach. And uh, for me, it's just an interesting perspective in terms of, um, you know, what one's goals are in life and trying to get the balance right, sharing with others, pursuing one's own goals and interests. Um, the plug is that, uh, and it also gets into our topic, he's got a small book of uh, Teshubot, of Responsa, and there are not so many Responsa that deal with modern cutting-edge issues. And even the ones that are slightly modern are already long out of date in terms of the practical mechanisms. So Rabbi Dweck, uh, who's now the head of the SMP in, in London, um, he spoke about uh, the dishwasher question. Can you have meat and milk, um, cut cutlery and crockery in the same dishwasher, which is one of the, uh, one of the lengthy pieces that Chacham Badi writes about. Um, and also, uh, you can actually check that out um, on, on any of the Chabura, Safadi Chabura S&P uh, stuff, you know, there, you know, it's very easy to find on Spotify or whatever, you can listen to that whole shiur. But what's interesting at the beginning of that, he does also a very good introduction as to who Chacham Abadi was, and he plays some original audio clips, so you can really get a feel of the nature of the man. Um, and what it was to be uh, that stature of Chacham, but to carry oneself in a way that was not, uh, you know, removed from the people, which I also, again, you know, I personally take a lot of strength from. So since the, the dishwasher topic was already taken, the most uh, up-to-date or modern topic that I could uh, find um, that I think has application and, and is interesting um, is one that is kind of covered fairly uh, you know, fairly commonly in, in halachic literature. It's not necessarily technologically up to date, but it, it does seem to be one that, you know, is rears its head every now and then and different perspectives. And it also kind of functions a little bit as for some people as a part of their identity um, and part of what they do. It's a big thing. So, um, yeah, the question that we will be dealing with today is how, how can you prepare your tea? On Shabbat. That's the question we're going to be dealing with today. Again, not cutting edge uh, in terms of technology, but what I'd like to do, and we don't have so long, is I would like to show you the question first, um, and then take you through uh, the uh, um, take you through the sources which are used by Chacham Abadi to analyze the question. Once we deal with his analysis, I'd like to show you or discuss the general structure of how he approaches a question, which I think is telling and important and, and informative. And lastly, I'd like to show you a, a couple of highlights, um, especially for Benesa Farad, that I think are, are nice takeaways. So without further ado, I'm going to do a lot of screen sharing. I work for an organization called the United Synagogue, and they give me a free subscription to the fundament, fundamentally fantastic website, Otzer HaChachma. So I'm sharing from them, and they actually have a copy of uh, Rav Abadi, Chacham Abadi's book, Magen Ba'adi, which more or less colloquially would translate to protect me. Uh, presumably, God is being asked to prepare a play on his surname. Um, and they've got the whole thing on there. So here is his question 
that he was asked. I tilt the microphone up in case I'm moving too far away. So the question is, um, and I'm, I don't have so much, a lot of the stuff, if, if most of the text I'm going to present, I don't have the translation, but I'm going to translate as I go along. And I'm also going to assume no background knowledge. Um, so let's do it. So this is the third uh, question and answer that is dealt with in Magen Vardi. And he talks about, let's begin. Nishalti Odot Gargireti. I was asked in regards to, um, uh, it's, it's gone from my mind in a second, it's not tea leaves, it's the stuff you get in a tea bag, like the ground, the ground grains of tea, that's the one, in, the, in, in, in a tea bag, someone helpfully has put in brackets tea um, in the middle of the question. They were not cooked uh, before Shabbat, meaning you hadn't taken your tea bag and put it in hot water before Shabbat to, to cook it. So it's an uncooked tea bag, as it were. Um, there is actually a discussion around the Wisotsky tea in Israel. Uh, there are claims that Wisotsky pre-cook their tea to avoid all sorts of questions. I don't know if that's actually true. Hi, Ohad, nice to see you. Um, but I don't know if Wazowski actually do pre-cook their tea, but either way, we're not talking about pre-cooked tea here. We're talking about tea that was not cooked before Shabbat. Imutar b'Shabbat Kodesh l'Shabbatam b'Kos to put them, well, uh, to take water from your Shabbat kettle or your urn, to pour it into a cup, and then to put the tea bag straight into the cup. That's the question. So just to get the practical problem down very clearly you've got your cup lovely mug you pour some hot water straight from a kettle a shabbat kettle or shabbat urn into your mug can you then take a tea bag and put it into your uh, cup that's the question so in order to address the question he has to he's going to assume a lot of information and what i've um, done or tried to do is deconstruct what he has done. Let's see the original sources inside. And if we're paying close enough attention, try and generate the answer that we think is the correct approach to the question of can you prepare tea uh, in, 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 in a cup on Shabbat after just pouring the water directly in from the urn. And then after we have our own conception of whether we think that it's allowed or not allowed. Let's see how he answers it. Let's see how he goes about answering it. So in order to do that, we've got to look at a few different places. The first place we're going to look at is uh, the Gemara and Shabbat. And this is on page, we've got to go back to 38b, right at the bottom of 38b. So there is a question. Well, the Mishnah starts. I'm just wondering, maybe we shouldn't get uh, distracted by the Mishnah. Let's just say like this, there is a brighter, there is a brighter, sorry, there is a mission of referenced here. There is a teaching of the rabbis, very authoritative teaching of the rabbis that is referenced here at the top of page 39a, which goes as follows. If, which literally translates to anything that has been in hot water, cooking temperature water before Shabbat, on Shabbat, you can soak it in cooking temperature water. Meaning, if I'd taken my tea bag before Shabbat, put it in boiling water, then left it, drained it, whatever, taken it out, 
put it and it's all completely dry to balance the playing field with regards to other questions. I can then take it and put it in the cup on Shabbat and pour the hot water directly on it. Or I can soak it directly in hot water, let it seep. But anything that was not cooked in water, boiled before Shabbat, wherever here, you can only, you can rinse it in hot water on Shabbat. So what's the difference? If you've, if you've boiled something before Shabbat, you can soak it in boiling water on Shabbat. But if you haven't done that before Shabbat, the most you can do is pour hot water over it on Shabbat. And then it lists um, a couple of obscure cases of fish, which you can't even pour hot water onto because that for various reasons. All we need to know is that there are two cases of very salty fish, two types of salty, weird, thin fish, don't know what kinds of fish they are, where you're not allowed, even though the general law is something that has not been cooked before Shabbat, you can drench it or rinse it in hot water on Shabbat, except those two things. That's going to be important. But, uh, you know, ad nauseum, let's just get the, the, the most important point down. Something which has been cooked before Shabbat, you can put in boiling water on Shabbat. Something which has not been cooked before Shabbat, you can only pour boiling water over it, but you can't put it in hot water. Okay. Now, let's go, let's flick over to the Rambam. Maimonides, I hope we've heard of him, um, who's going to, oh, you haven't heard of him. <laughs> um, he's a small time rabbi in the tradition of our ancestors. Um, so we are, um, there are a couple of halachot which are relevant to this. So we saw the, the law in the Gemara, but we're now going to have to kind of break out a couple of smaller points because it's about to get complicated. So far, perhaps one would say, if I've got my tea, okay, I haven't put it in hot water before Shabbat, but in theory, I could drench hot water over it over Shabbat. I don't know what use that would be, but we don't have, you know, we don't have so much clarity. Okay, let's see. The Rambam's going to write two halachot in this regard. Um, these are important. Okay, so the first one, this is in chapter 22. Uh, halacha 6, right at the end of Halacha 6, I'm going to bold it. Im tzak um, What's the case here? Slightly different case. You've got a boiling stew, and you're going to pour the boiling stew from your pot into a serving bowl. That's the case. Even though it boiled and bubbled away in the pot, you can place inside the serving bowl spices. Why? Because we're dealing with something called a klisheni. Now, this is very, again, I'm assuming no knowledge, but it's very easy to explain. Water that is heated up on the fire or any liquid that's heated up on the fire is called a klisheni, the first vessel. Anything it's then poured into, the same liquid is poured into another vessel that is now called Klisheni, second vessel or vessel number two. So what's the Rambam basically said? You can put something, you can put spices, even though they were not cooked before Shabbat, raw spices, 
not cooked before Shabbat. You can put them in a klisheni, a second vessel, because we've got a principle that second vessels don't cook. Klisheni enam avashel. You can take that home and remember that as long as you've got it in a second vessel, means it's in a klisheni, your liquid is not going to cook anything. It's going to leave it alone. Now, we can always ask the questions. We're not going to, but we can get asked the questions. Is this creating a halachic legal reality that's not tied into the scientific reality? Is it really true? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Is it really true that... Um, is it really true scientifically? Is it, you know, can we test this, that there is kind of less cooking power once you've transferred liquid from a from the pot you cooked you cooked it in to a secondary pot? Maybe the, the, the walls are of a different temperature, that's going to have an effect. But the, the takeaway point of the Rambam is that a second class vessel for now on a, a cliche in Vashal, it doesn't cook. So now let's go back to the Gemara. The Gemara said, something which I didn't cook before Shabbat, I am not allowed to soak it in hot water on Shabbat. But I can pour hot water over it on Shabbat. Now, for the Rambam, it can't be that I'm not allowed to soak it in hot water in a klisheni on Shabbat, because a klisheni doesn't cook. So what the, the Gemara is telling me, according to the Rambam, is take your tea bag. If it hasn't been cooked before Shabbat, you cannot soak it in a klisheni a first vessel, but klisheni doesn't cook, it's completely fine. So what you can do, what the Gemara is telling me I can do is I can pour water from a klisheni over it. But the tea, according to the case that Chacham Abadi was asked, can I put it in a uh, cup and put my tea bag in the cup as long as I put the water in first, that's fine. In fact, even if I pour the water straight from the urn over the tea bag, seemingly from the rum bun, that would also be fine. Because the only problem is to soak it in the in, to put it in the pot. But if I'm pouring, that's okay, <laughs> as the Rambam's going to say explicitly. Now the Rambam's summarizing our Gemara over here. By the way, if we get lost or I'm confusing anyone, just put your hand up or shout out because I can't see everyone on the screen, and we'll uh, try and clarify. Uh, but I'll try and summarize at every stage. But this is the Rambam summarizing our Gemara. Something that was cooked before Shabbat. Or something that was soaked in hot water before Shabbat. Even though it's now cooled down. It's Shabbat now. You can put it back in the hot water. So for the Rambam, remember, Klisheni doesn't cook. This must be in the Kli Rishon. Something that wasn't cooked before Shabbat. Never been in hot water. You can pour hot water over it, but you can't soak it in hot water. So he must be talking about a Kli Rishon, because he's already said the Kli Shani doesn't cook. So you can pour a Kli Rishon on it, but you can't, but, but you can't soak it in a Kli Rishon. Um, let's, uh, let, and, and we're going to leave that there. So point number one. Let's just uh, stop the share. We'll come back to it. We had a Gemara that said anything that was not heated up before Shabbat, so our tea bag, you can't soak it in hot water, but you can pour hot water over it. According to the Rambam's explanation, that is only you, the only problem would be putting it straight in the urn. But if you put the urn water into another vessel, that's in a klisheni, you could put the tea straight in the klisheni. That's the Rambam. Right. Clear. Okay. Now we're going to go to Toswat.
because that's where Rav Abadi starts, back, in, back into Tosfot. Now, we've got something that's cooked before Shabbat, so not our, uh, not our tea bag, something that's been cooked before Shabbat. Again, this is important. We're switching from the tea bag case to a different case, so let's come up with a different case. Um, you've got a hard-boiled sweet that you put in a, uh, you know, a nice sugary thing. You put it in uh, hot water. It's fully cooked. Um, can you then put that back in, in hot water on Shabbat? So then the answer is yes. If it wasn't fully cooked, then you can't, but you can pour hot water over it. Um, now we're going into the Tosfot, which is over here. Le Perish Rabbeinu Tam. According to Rabbeinu Tam, de mefarish de iroi have a kakli reshon. Now, according to Rabbeinu Tam, we're going to forget the Rambam. Iroi, pouring, is the equivalent to... Oh, I'm not showing you the screen. Here we go. There we go. There we go. According to Rabbeinu Tam, if I take hot water from a Kli Rishon, from my urn, and pour it on something, the, the water that's being poured is treated exactly the same as putting the, the item in the urn. Now... Wherever he got that principle from is creating a problem with our Gemara because our Gemara said, here we go, de iroi have a That's created a massive problem. Our Gemara said, even if you hadn't cooked it before Shabbat, you can pour hot water over it. According to Rabbeinu Tam, you can't pour hot water over it if you're pouring from the Kli because that counts as a Kli so what's the case according to the Rabbeinu Tam that you're taking hot water and you're pouring it? You must be pouring it from a clay clichéni. Now that creates another problem. If the Gemara according to Rabbeinu Tam is telling me if I have got my tea bag that's not cooked, the only thing I'm allowed to do on, for it is pour water that's already in a clichéni onto it. So I take my urn water, put it in cup one, and then I can pour that over the tea bag that's in cup two. <sighs> If that's the case for Rabbeinu Tam, then presumably, according to Chacham Abadi's question, you cannot put your tea bag and pour straight into a cup that's got water from the urn in it. Why? Because that's klisheni. So the pouring case of the Gemara must be talking about pouring from a klisheni, not from a klirishon. And so therefore, we must be already talking about having it in a klishishi, perhaps a third vessel or something like that. Bottom line, Rabbeinu Tam, it looks like we're going to say, Asa, you cannot put your tea bag in a cup uh, in the case that Chacham Abadi has outlined. Fine. Um, that's what we said. You got, so it must be the Gemara is talking about pouring from a klisheni, not a klirishon. If it's true that you uh, are allowed, if the Gemara is telling me that I'm allowed to pour hot water from a klisheni, over the item, then surely, why, why is it telling me that? Perhaps I should be able to just put it straight into the klisheni. Maybe we hold like the rumbum that the klisheni doesn't cook. But what I'm saying, I'm, I know I'm, I'm confusing myself here. I'm just trying to highlight the point. The, 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 the Tosfot here is just writing out the point. If you hold that pouring from a hot water urn is the same thing as putting it straight in the urn, then you're going to have a problem with our Gemara. It looks like klisheni is going to be a problem. So according to the re, he says, yes, that's true. You can't put it in a klisheni, as we've already said. Since the water's hot in my klisheni, it looks like cooking. 
Now, that's a very important distinction because according to the uh, according to that explanation, there's no problem on a Torah level. And I'm getting confused. Either way, we'll just let's stay focused because we're going to have to navigate all of these when we go to the Triva. So according to Ree's explanation of Rabbeinu Tam, no good. Let's keep going. Let's, we've got another explanation. Um, okay, Inami, who are din shorin oto? Who are din shorin oto? There's another explanation that the Gemara is not being specific in its Lashon, and even according to Tosfot and Rabbeinu Tam, you can still cook it in a cup, and he explains why the Gemara would use Lashon that's not, spe- the, the language that's not specific and all the language that it uses. Let's bring it back in together. We've got the Rambam, who definitely said, if I put my tea in my tea bag in, in, in a secondary cup, after I poured hot water from the urn in it, I'm good to go. And Rabbeinu Tam, we've got two options to explain him. Either he holds it's a problem, and we'll get to why in a second. We'll hold that there's some problem with the second vessel. Or he holds there's not a problem and the Gemara's language is confusing, but let's put that to one side. Now, it looks an awful lot like, I'm going to reshare screen again because we're going to go to the third important player in this uh, conversation. This is the Shulchan Aruch, Rav Yosef Karo. Um, it looks like he too holds exactly like the Rambam that there's no problem in Chacham Abadi's case. Let's see. Here, in, this, in, in Halacha number four, we're in 318 of Orachayim, uh, Halacha number four. If we're dealing im hudavar yavesh, if we're dealing with something dry, that it's not been cooked before Shabbat, Exactly what the Gemara said. So we don't know whether at this point he's saying you've got to pour from a second vessel or a first vessel, and therefore we don't know if you can put it straight into a cliché in our tea case. Let's look at the next halacha. There are those that say that something something that was uh, baked or um, fried, uh, that's not, or roasted before Shabbat. There are those that say that even if you performed a cooking act that's not the same thing as, as cooking the item in lots of liquid, you can't then cook it in liquid on Shabbat, not our case. And, but this is the key point. It's also prohibited to put bread in a klisheni that's hot. However, there are those that allow it. Now, for reasons that I'm not going to get into, if you want to see inside, you want to discuss with me, there are those that allow it, meaning there are those that allow putting even bread, which is this, you know, thin, easy to cook thing in a klisheni on Shabbat, even if the klisheni is boiling and bubbling away, the, the, the Shulchan Aruch quotes someone that prohibits it, and that's the Yerayim, Rabbi Lezmi Mitz. But then he says there are those that allow it. Now we know that the Shulchan Aruch in this case holds like the position that says Yesh Matirin. There are those that allow it. Again, why we know that is a more complicated issue, which I don't want to get off topic. But basically, to bring it all together again, one more time, we had a Gemara that said, you can, something that's not been cooked before Shabbat, our tea bag, you can pour hot water over it. For the Rambam and for the Shulchan Aruch, 
that is hot water straight from the urn. And therefore, we can definitely take hot water from the urn, put it in a secondary cup, and then put the tea in the cup. For Rabbeinu Tam, there's a debate because Rabbeinu Tam has a problem. Rabbeinu Tam says you can't pour hot water straight from the urn onto it. And so there's a debate. Does Rabbeinu Tam hold that putting the tea bag in a cup of boiling hot water that's been poured straight from the urn, is it a problem or is it not a problem? The first opinion says, yes, it's a problem. And therefore we couldn't do what Chacham Abadi has been asked to do. And the second opinion says, no, it's a problem, in which case the Shulchan Aruch, the Rambam and Rabbeinu Tam all line up and say that it's fine. That is the background from which we are going to proceed. Is everyone okay? I can't say other than Ohad. If Ohad's okay, Ohad's fine, then that's fine. Anyone else, speak now, forever hold your peace. Okay, we're going back to the share screen, and now we're going to go into the Shuva uh, of Chacham Abadi. So, here we go. Chuva. Answer. Now, I'm going to summarize. There's a lot in the Trevor, so I'm going to skip over the main things, but I want to point out the structure. The first thing that Chacham Abadi is going... Now we've got all the background. The first thing Chacham Abadi is thinking to himself is, I've been asked a question. Can I put my tea bag in my mug that's got hot water straight from the urn in it? He has to work out what the problem might be. Now, the first problem one might consider is, maybe the tea changes the color of the water, and that looks a lot like dyeing like to dye the water a certain color. And that would be a problem. He says, Certainly with regards to dyeing the water, dyeing would be an act that's prohibited from the Torah on Shabbat. Certainly with regards to dyeing the water, We know that there's no dyeing by, uh, by foodstuffs. That's not going to be a problem. That's a nice Sephardic uh, reference. Medivre Muram, Mori Rebbe, that would be uh, Rav Moshe Isilis, uh, the, the author of the, the, the Ramah, Rav Moshe Isilis, author of the Hagar, the, uh, the tablecloth, the Mapa to the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, and so he writes explicitly, You might think that there's no dying by food. Maybe they'd be dying by liquid. And then, no, no one holds that dying by liquid. And he basically says, basically, everyone holds that. And even those that don't hold that, um, uh, we don't need to bother with them. And he quotes Ravavadja to that, Ravavadja Yosef to that effect. Fine. So now we're getting into the meat. And this is, we've seen everything. So we're ready to do this. Amna. However, what's the problem? The, the, the potential issue here, we're dealing with something that wasn't heated up or cooked before Shabbat. And therefore, it seems, in my humble opinion, even what, remember, the first option of Rabbeinu Tam, the explanation of Rabbeinu Tam that we saw, was that Rabbeinu Tam does hold that cooking that putting the tea straight in the second cup would be a problem. The second opinion of uh, explanation of remaining time is not a problem. The first opinion is it's a problem. So saying, let's start with the most potentially problematic case. Rabbeinu Tam holds that it looks like putting something in a cliche directly would be a problem. Let's see. He says, "Afilu leteretz rishon shel tosfot beparak hira. Da afilu bekli sheni medichin davka velos shorin." We're dealing with a with a case where what's allowed is you have to pour from a kli sheni. You can't put it straight in a kli sheni. 
the hoil, and this is the reason why what's the reason? Why is why has Rabbeinu Tam got a problem with this? Why can't you put stuff straight into a cliche? According to Rabbeinu Tam, the hoil shahmaim chamin mechzik mavasha. According to Rabbeinu Tam, or at least the explanation of Rabbeinu Tam, there's no actual problem putting the tea in the tea bag in the hot water that's in your mug, which is this, which is the cliche. That's not a problem on a Torah level. There's no prohibition against cooking because we're going to really hold that cliche in a There's no cooking in a cliche. What's the problem? It looks like you're cooking. And the rabbis came along and said, don't do things that look like you're cooking. Why they came along and said that, that's for another shit. But if you've got something that's very hot and it's in a and, it, and it's bubbling away in a cup and you're going to start dunking stuff in there and leaving it in there, that looks an awful lot like cooking. So according to the uh, first version of Rabbeinu Tam, who was strict with putting it in the cliche, why is he strict? Because it looks like it looks like cooking. Chacham Abadi is going to say that might be true for most things, but even by tea, however, that's not true. Let's say that again. On the most strict version, we've got a problem, according to Rainu Tam, of putting tea in a mug that's a second, that's a cliché But, says Chacham Abadi, the only problem with that is not that there's actual cooking, it just looks like cooking. But the tea bag doesn't look like cooking. How do I know? Let's see. Why? Because we got precedent. Even though... It looks like cooking. We do know from other sources that you can put seasoning in a cliche. And Tosfot's got no problem with that. So it must be that there's no problem of looking like cooking if you're dealing with something like seasoning. And if with seasoning, there's no problem. Perhaps with tea, there's no problem. Why? Let's see. Um... Um... What's the reason? Because you don't eat the thing that you're putting in. The only problem when it looks like cooking is if when you're dunking in your second, when you're cliche, you're dunking something you're then going to take out and eat. But you don't put the seasoning in and then take the seasoning out and eat it. The seasoning gets, you never see it. It's never visible. You don't eat the seasoning. You eat the thing you're seasoning. And therefore, there's no problem by with doing that because according to Tosfot, for again, whatever reason, we're not coming into the, the conceptual area here. We're just saying Tosfot thinks that the law is, yes, cliche is a problem, but that's only by things that when you're dunking in, you pick them out and you eat them. Tavlin's not a problem. Seasoning's not a problem. And maybe tea's not a problem. No one puts the tea bag in, takes it out and eats the tea bag. So he says, maybe you want to say they're different. Lalai has a whole back and forth about it. But the bottom line is, and this is the methodological point, even according to the worst case scenario, remember we had the Rambam, we had the second explanation of Tosfot, we had the Shulchan Aruch, even according to the worst case scenario, which is which is the Halacha would follow the first explanation of Tosfot, it's probably still okay with tea, because Tosfot's only problem is things that look like cooking, and Tosfot holds that things that you dunk in, but you don't take out to eat, don't look like cooking. So to bring all of that together, We've got a question. We're going to go straight to the worst case scenario. And we're going to say, even on the worst case scenario, it's not a problem. Now, he says, nonetheless, um, oh, I've skipped a little bit. Oh, look, shit, dark take. If you pay close attention to everything that's been written on this area, as I, Chacham Abadi, have, and he really has, it's a long trip, he's seen everything. Tim Zaki Poskim at Zumin, great halachic decisors, some Hudafka Terrat Shenishal at Tosfot. The Hadit Namadikin Lord Dalav Dafka, who had ensured not to be called Meaning, we said that the Tosfot's first destination was the worst case scenario, and even that's fine. But he's saying, 
the big players don't even follow this, the first explanation of Tosfot. They follow the second explanation of Tosfot. Now let's see some... Uh, Let's see what we've already seen. And I've got no concern, meaning let's step back from the worst case scenario because we probably don't even hold like that anyway. We're going to go to the Rambam, who's the major player here. I have no doubt that he holds that it's fine to do this T move. Um, uh, for those that pay close attention, as we already have, but, but in, in his laws, in, in the 22nd Perek, if you pay close attention, as I'm going to bring later, and so the, to the Tor, who's the precursor to the Shulchan Aruch, the son of the Rosh, Katav, Al-Divrei, Rebbe Yadizmimitz, okay, one second, we're going to skip all of that. Um, I just want to find the important line. Here we go. Umaran and the Shulchan Aruch. We already saw he brings Rabbi Yelis Mimitz, who says you can't put bread in a klisheni. Katav Yesh Matirin, there are those that allow it for Katav HaMagen Avram and the Magen Avram, who's a commentator on the Shulchan Aruch, says. Meaning the, the Magen Avram says the Shulchan Aruch is the lenient one that holds cliche and he doesn't cook. The Rambam holds cliche and he doesn't cook. Tosfot on the first explanation holds cliche and he doesn't cook. And even because Tosfot on the, on the first explanation holds that it only cooks on a Durabana level, it only looks like cooking. And in this case, they wouldn't, wouldn't look like, a, like a, it wouldn't be a problem. And then we go through this whole, I'm just going to my physical copy, which Sinna kindly, kindly lent me just to see where to skip to, because um, there's an important line. Um, see if I can get it. Here we go. We're going to skip now to the fifth thing, because we're just going to bring everything we've seen together in the final decision, rendering the decision. Um, he says... Ah, now we're going to take, we're going to do one more thing, then we're going to look at the decision, and I want to point out two cool things. So, so far, we're in good territory. I hope I've been fairly clear. There's, this is how he's analyzed it. He's seen all the, he's seen the Gemaras, he's seen the Rishonim, he's gone through what are the options according to each Rishon. Rishon. Then he writes, the Da, and you should know. The, um, the Mishnah Brewer, the, the famous commentary uh, on the Shulchan Aruch, is very strict when it comes to cooking tea. Now, everything we've said so far has been quite lenient. But he says, don't worry, I've seen the Mishnah Brewer and I know he doesn't like cooking tea. And why doesn't he like cooking tea on Shabbat? Um, and this is what he writes. This is a quote from the Mishnah Brewer. He says it's, it's a problem. He quotes the Gemara. And all the more so, not only because of the Gemara, all the more so, there are many things which not only we do, might, we might even have a general law that a klisheni doesn't cook, but maybe there are some things that do cook even in a klisheni. And what would those things be? Those things would be the things that we saw right in the beginning in our Gemara. We said you can do these things except for the Malich Yashan, the Kolayas Ha'ispen, in these two kinds of fish that are really easy to cook. Maybe they would be a problem. Um, so the, the Mishnah Burr is bringing in, maybe there are things that even though klisheni doesn't cook, usually there are things that do cook in a klisheni, and maybe tea would be one of those things that cook in a klisheni. So this is where the whole Mishnah Burr comes, comes from, and he says you've got to prepare your tea before Shabbat, or at least you've got to do it in the third, in a klishlishi, which a lot of people do. Um, 
אהההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההה
meaning you can put it straight in. Meaning for us, it's the, the law is clear, clear. You can boil it straight into your second, in your cliche put your water in the urn, in the cliche and put your tea in the tea bag in the tea in the, in, in, in the mug because that's what we've ruled based on the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch, and even Tosfot. I want to show you one final cool uh, thing, which he adds at the end, which you don't see so often, but is an important principle nonetheless. So we've got our bottom line. We've said that the Mishnah Brewer, who's, who's stringent, looks like from a thorough analysis, might not have so many legs to stand on, and at least he would need to issue a, uh, a, a thorough response. Um, and so therefore, the bottom line is he's makele. We can prepare it in a, in a, in a cliché. And uh, yeah, so... I, I want to show you this thing in one second. I just want to discuss the structure of the chuva really quickly. Remember, we defined the problem. Then we go through a detailed analysis of the problem. Then he brings together his conclusion and he begins to support himself. And we skipped all of this out. He begins to support himself with all sorts of other people that ruled similarly to him to bring precedent to his position. Then he rules. He gives his final ruling. He challenges those that disagree with his ruling. And then we see this fantastic line, which is very important. We should all remember this line. It says here, right at the end. Where is it? There we go. Maybe it was added. Where is it? Yeah. Ah, here we go. Vetsur Yisrael and God, the rock of Israel. He should save us from, from making mistakes in our psak. So he's asking God for help in his ruling. Whether it's to allow something that's forbidden, like preparing tea on Shabbat, could be a real problem, could be cooking on Shabbat. Or whether it's whether it's to forbid something that's actually prohibited, that's actually permitted. So that's a, a dig at all of those who have been too strict in his analysis or incorrectly, uh, or inaccurately strict in his analysis. He said, you can do it. He, bring, he brought great proofs. Perhaps if you are not thorough and you adjudicate stringency in this case, you are violating the, the error of prohibiting that which is permitted. And that would be problematic as well. I think that's, uh, and if that's too, he says that God should show us uh, or we will see the wonders of God's Torah, which, which have no end. So to wrap it all up, this was a, uh, an interesting experience for me to go through as Shuvah. I don't think that it's, uh, I don't think that it's a, a revolutionary to Shuvah, but it was still very thoroughly researched. There's a lot in there. Um, there's a lot of different Chachamim who are referenced. There is a lot of very accurate analysis. There's a lot of uh, scope and breadth and there's also structure but we can also see that the uh, Sephardi uh, Psat comes through that we're not going to take on things which go against our core pillars the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch and we're also going to be very careful not only about permitting that which is prohibited but also about prohibiting that which is permitted and bottom line at least we have what to rely on to prepare tea in the cliche on Shabbat thank you for listening if there are any questions I will take them. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jack, uh, for an excellent cheer, as we say in the Sephardic community. If anyone has any questions, uh, please feel free to enter them to the chat or raise your hand and we'll unmute you as uh, quickly as we can to ask. Um, I'm curious, uh, Rabbi Jack, uh, can you explain a little bit, maybe um, a little bit beyond the topic, but what was it that kind of pulled you to Rabbi uh, Abadi 
and his philosophy and kind of got you more interested in the kind of Sephardic world because you yourself, like you said, you're not actually Sephardic, um, but you became more interested in learning more about the community and its philosophy. So I, um, so there's a few different pieces, but the piece that's relevant to me is that um, Chacham Faor was a massive Chacham Abadi fan. He thought that, that you know, he was the, he was a, a top rate Posek and he spoke so highly of him that I had to go and see what his Teshuvot were like. Um, and it's hard when you're listening to Chacham Faor to work out who he's talking against. So um, the point that I think here is if you look at the two big players in uh in in at least in certain people's perspective in Pesach in, in the modern world you might be talking about Chacham Avadio Yosef and uh and, and maybe for the Ashkenazim you'd be talking about Rav Moshe Feinstein and both of them have these elements which are very unique to them so Rav Moshe Feinstein speaks very he will do the analysis himself he won't worry too much about bringing in hundreds of supports from um you know precedent and this like. he very much trusts his his analysis even if it's unique um and furthermore on on the flip side um uh Ravavaja Yosef will bring in whilst there is analysis in there you can't say there isn't a lot of it is 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 more strongly based on precedent and and just grouping numbers sheer numbers of uh of 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 people to support his view and i think that in this uh in this in this teshuva there's a real nice balance we have the we have very keen analysis which is not too complex but very thorough um and then we have a lot of discussion of which i missed out but a discussion of precedent and people that agree with him not only uh in his analysis but in this specific case of of cooking something in a cliche on shabbat he, he talks a lot about coffee and so you kind of have a uh, nice clean best of both worlds approach um, and so maybe that's what um, Chacham Faor was was speaking to. I don't know, but I I was very excited by his charismatic description. So I had to check him out. In terms of how I got uh, involved uh, more and more in this, is you know Sinakain who who dropped off already. My rap my rabbi's rabbi, rabbi Dweck, and I learned a lot from him. But Sin has also given me a lot of literature and especially um, the development of the Torah Shabbat pair. Um, and understanding that more clearly and that what the ramifications are for Pesach Kalacha, etc. Those are things that are, for me are, are very much a, what they would call a red pill and have opened my eyes to a, a different perspective, which I've found illuminating. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much for the, those insights. I appreciate it. Um, we have another question over here from um, Ohad. I'm sorry, I cannot pronounce your name. I'm so sorry. His name is Ohad. Ohad, he, thank you so much. For, I'm just gonna, yeah, I'm when he's with Ashkenazim, we're Ohad. <laughs> <laughs> so please, Bechavod. Thank you, and thank you, Rabbi Jack. Uh, why would why would Chacham Abadi hold that we should go like the Mishnah Berurah if he holds that it's does it below Tama? Meaning he doesn't say, I hear his reasoning, but I disagree. He says, below Tama, and then he has that nice line at the end. God protect us from these types of people, basically. I look, I think he's very clear in his um, explanation. Um, I ha I'm not here to defend the, I'm not here to defend uh, the Mishnah Burah, um, and I haven't done that work. And I'm sure that, you know, he, he was, a, there's no, you can't say he was not a first rate Tamachacham. He, you know, he really knew what he's talking about. But when Ravavadi, when, when Ravavadi is done with him in the Teshuvah, there really isn't much left for him to stand on 
again, I'm not saying he couldn't respond to it. And, you know, Hassan Shalom, I'm just saying that um, there's not much left for him to stand on. And so it really stumps me um, when there's so much precedent and there's so much, uh, you know, keen analysis that, and, and his suck is so clear, but it could be, and my, my suspicion might is that he might be interested in writing his Pesach not just for the um, not just for the Sephardic community. This was the only thing I could think of, and he wants to write to Shabbat that can be read by anyone, and so therefore he's aware that the influence that the Mishnah Berurah has on the on the Ashkenazic world, and I think a lot of his analysis of Tosfot. Now I don't know enough to say this. I don't know enough about him, but if it was me writing the Shabbat, I wouldn't have spent so much time on Tosfot if I wasn't interested in also kind of going. I know the sugya. I know how the Ashkenazim learned the sugya, um, and so I think that there might be an attempt here for unity, which is a really important value. You know, it might it might mean that we have to sacrifice sometimes on accuracy. But there might be a bid here for unity. So he's very clear, you know, from an analytical perspective, we have no uh, support. We're bringing no support to the uh, to the anti-cliché team. But for the uh, but perhaps for unity, we're not going to tell you to stop doing what you're already doing. That's the best I have. I'm happy to take other suggestions. One last question over here. Um, just uh, as a clarity question, does this um, Teshuvah also apply to copy on Shabbat as well, or just to tea? So that's the discussion he brings in the middle. I'm happy to, uh, I'm, I'm, someone will get you the book at some point, Zev, um, and you'll see it in the middle. It's a, it's a, it's a Teshuvah in the, um, in one of the uh, in one of the Acharonim where he, where there are like four positions against him about, um, about coffee, that's the discussion. And of course there are differences in that some coffee is pre-cooked under certain conditions, but the principles here that Klyushani Enum Avashel and something even for Tosfot who holds that there's a problem of Mexican Avashel in a Klyushani and the strict interpretation of Tosfot wouldn't be a problem. It would apply for all things, except your uh, things that are, you know, equivalent to, uh, or no worse as Chacham Vadi said, no worse than bread um, or Tavlin or, th or things like that. Don't dunk your uh, don't dunk your heavily salted thin fish, but tea would be okay. Wonderful. With that, we're gonna close the program. I want to thank Rabbi Jack so much and the Habura, our partners in UK, for this wonderful second part of our three-part series. We'll be back next week for the third and final part of our three-part series on Sephardic responsa for the modern world. Um, particularly talking about Rabbi Chaim David Halavi, a disciple of Rabbi uh, Rab Uziel and the contemporary of Rabbi uh, Avadi Yosef. So it should be a fascinating discussion. Um, and I hope you all join us next week. Same time, same place. Can I just say, before you close, can sure, I just please. say, um, so I, when, where I learned in, in yeshiva, so my Rosh Kollel was, uh, was, um, was the son-in-law of the person you're going to be learning next week. So, was, you know, we had a direct connection, but there you go. So there you go, a perfect plug to please join us next week. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rabbi Jack, and thank you all so much for joining us uh, and wish you all a, a good uh, good week and uh, see you next week, God willing.